Welcome to Common Ground Church, Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. The book of James is rich in learning to know God's heart for his people and how to walk in obedience and faithfulness. Please continue listening for today's message. James 4, 11 to 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Two, one, two, there I am, there I am, one, two, there we go. Good evening, everybody. Great to be together. Did anyone else's heart jump out of their chest as soon as that video came on? It was like, it was like the opening of Netflix. I suddenly had, I got triggered there. Um, If you are here for the first time, great to have you with us. I know it's school holidays, so some people are here from out of town. Great to have you with us. My name is Garth. I'm married to Sam. We have a little daughter named uh, Katie, and uh, it is just good to be the church gathered this evening. And if you're joining us for the first time, we've been in the book of James, and uh, we find ourselves now in chapter four. We find ourselves in chapter four, and we've kind of seen this big idea and this theme that kind of runs through uh, chapter four that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And if I could summarize it into one point, it would be this, humble dependence on God. Humble dependence on God. And two weeks ago, we kicked off this sort of little mini series into chapter four. And Ian uh, spoke to us about disordered love. He spoke to us about quarreling. And uh, most of the quarreling that we enter into comes from this sort of disordered passions and desires in us. He spoke to us about what it means to be friends with the world and thus at enmity with God. All of this stemming from this love inside of us, this disordered sort of desires, a love for things, love for the world above God. And then last week we had Jeff and he showed us how James calls us to humbly submit to the Lordship of Jesus in our lives. And when we do humbly submit to him, when we submit to his Lordship, we see how true repentance can lead us to true change and true restoration in our lives. And uh, this morning, we're gonna see our need for humble dependence a little bit more, but somewhat of a a different angle. And uh, James has really been up in our grill over the last couple of weeks. In fact, this whole year, he's really been up in our grill. He's given us a little bit of a rinse, and I don't think he lets us off again. And um, he, um, he kind of calls out our sinful actions, and then he kind of gets cut straight to, to the heart. And my plan was um, to start off with a bit of a question this evening. Sorry, this has come off. Um, to start off with a bit of a question this evening, just to provoke us and to get us thinking. And, uh, and I realized I don't need to. James has already given us a question. If we look at our, the end of our text, James has already given us a question. He says this, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Shall I close in prayer? We don't. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Who are you to judge your neighbor? 
And um, it's a great question, but it's very rhetorical. And it does beg a little bit of reasoning. And we're gonna spend the rest of our sermon helping us come up with the adequate heart response to James's great rhetorical question that he puts to us. You see, throughout the book of James, it's evident that James sees the way that we treat one another as something of a bit of a litmus test to our relationship with God or how we, how we view God. He basically says, says, you wanna know the condition of your heart, then ask yourself, how are you doing with loving God and therefore loving other people? How are you doing with that? And he makes it simple. And this is what we see time and time again. He calls out these sinful actions on these Jewish Christians and he does the reverse diagnostic on that into the condition of their heart. And then he calls them to walk humbly with the Lord and to live out their faith in God's way. That's kind of what he does and then rinse and repeat. And so it's, it's, it's no surprise that as we approach our text this eve, that's exactly what James does. He exposes some sinful action. He does the reverse diagnostic on the condition of our heart. He gives us a bit of the reasons why these sinful actions are occurring. And so tonight, as we look to our text, we're gonna see four things. We're gonna see that James does that. He exposes the sinful action, which is we not to speak evil and be judgmental. And then what he does is he goes on to give us some reasoning about that. And he says, why this is happening, he says, because we are not above the law. And then he's gonna tell us that we need to let the judge be the judge. And then he closes off with that rhetorical question, but who are you to judge? So that's how we're gonna pack our text this evening. But if I could sum it up, if James was having a bit of a half-time talk and he'd say, can you gather in here? I just wanna tell you something. And he'd say to these Jewish Christians, he'd say, as you've got to know, there's nothing more arrogant than being judgmental and speaking evil about people, about people. It's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. It's not just a matter of the tongue. It's not just about your tongue. It's actually about your heart. It's actually about your heart. There's greater concern here. And as we go through our text this evening, that's what we're going to see James expound on. Let's pray and then we're gonna dive in. Lord, thank you that we are your people gathered this evening. Thank you that you are present with us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would shape our hearts, allow us to increase in the knowledge of who you are. I pray this morning that, as we heard earlier, that we would change, we'd be transformed to be more like you. Would you fill us with your love, Lord? We pray, amen. Amen, great, let's get straight into it. So he says, we're not to speak evil or be judgmental. Verse 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers or sisters. So at first, when we look at this text, we can think, speak evil, be judgmental. Yes, that sounds hectic, that sounds hectic. That's not me. But there's someone here that came today and I'm glad that they're here because they're super imperfect and they really need to hear this sermon. And God needs to change their lives and change their character. Let that caterpillar become a butterfly very quickly. And we can think about other people. We can think about other people. But my point is this, I think sometimes we let ourselves off the hook when it comes to speaking evil against someone or judging someone else. And I go as far as to say, I think this is one of the sins that as Christ followers especially, we justify the most. We justify the most. And so I wanna get a little bit descriptive on what James is actually speaking about here. And there are different types of 
kind of judgmental, evil speech, there's destructive speech, which kind of encompasses everything, but there's gossip, there's criticism, there's slander, there's lying about someone. But it's not just the, the type of speech we use, but also how and when we use that speech. There's a pastor by the name of Paul Tripp. He speaks about this playing itself out in kind of three uh, different categories. And I found it so helpful and I wanted to speak into them. And he says, first, we could be judgmental or speak evil about others by speaking to ourselves, by speaking to ourselves. And this is an important one because I think what Paul Tripp's actually getting to here is he's saying that it's not just a matter of the tongue and what you're speaking to other people. How you speak in your, uh, in your head, that's called it's kind of self-talk and how we're thinking, shows or it's evidence that this is coming from the condition of our hearts. It's coming from the, a poor heart condition. We can criticize people. We can think the worst of people in our head and it comes out from our heart. And um, do you ever have make-believe arguments with people in your head? All the time, all the time, so it's not just me. I realized as I was prepping the sermon that this is gonna be a confession session and a sermon as well, just so you know, just to prepare your hearts. But I have arguments with people all the time I hear. I especially do it when I'm in the shower. And you know, you know, these are my people. These are my people, you know. And I know because I've conditioned my hair like three times and I haven't realized it. So, so when I've got a shiny coat, you know that the condition of my heart is like, so bad, so, so bad. But I, this is exactly what I do. And, and what I do is I just paint them in the absolute uh, worst light, and then the nicest thing is I always win. I always win the argument, by the end of the argument. And it's just the most classic example of pride. It's the most classic example of pride, because not only are we putting them down falsely, on false accusation, but we're lifting ourselves up incorrectly or falsely. It's like the most classic example of pride. It feeds into that kind of self-righteousness, power-hungry part of us. Another way we do this is we can do this silently, where we've put kind of our judgments on a person, we put them in that judgmental box, and then there's other ways silently that we do this where we can't celebrate that person, or we can't celebrate with that person. Why? Because we've written them off in our sort of judgmental box that we have probably coming from envy, comparison, that, that prideful heart. Another way we could do this, uh, secondly, is we could speak evil or be judgmental directly to another person. And this is where our heart's not in the right place and we just verbally kind of attack someone, we belittle someone, we criticize them, maybe through again, a bit of jealousy, self-righteousness bubbling up. Maybe they've wronged us and that's been the trigger to it. Have you, ever, have you ever had an argument or, or verbally attacked someone where you actually don't have all the facts? You don't have all the facts. You just assume the worst of them and their intentions. You've built up this kind of arguments against them in your head, and then you go and you have the conversation, but all the time you've justified and made your judgment already on this, on this person, on their intentions, on who they are, on what they've done, You've already made that decision in your mind and you start having that conversation, you're actually not listening, you're just waiting for your turn to speak, to justify your judgment. And um, I, I had this where I, 
I had been uh, thinking through something, I had one of those arguments in my head, I went to speak to this person, and as I went to go speak to this person, they were like, I just want to apologize about that thing I said the other day. I just, yeah, just want to let you know. And I was like, you can't do that. (laughs) I've been sitting in the judgmental jacuzzi here for two hours, wasting two hours of my life, and now I've come here and I've gone, I've just realized how much time I've wasted putting in the judgment box, and now everything's fine. And I've assumed so much. And, and I could have had that disagreement, I could have entered into that disagreement with that judgmental box already there, just justifying my way, because it sits deep. And we can think of it as conviction, but it's not. It's a pride that's latched onto a form of judgment that's justified a case against someone. And that's what it starts to look like. Another way we could do this is speaking to other people about other people or another person, otherwise described as gossip or slander. And it takes many forms. It could be us complaining about someone, or we could speak about others' failures or shortcomings or sin to others. We can share confidential or personal information about someone with the wrong intent. And we often, and this gets to the heart of it, we often dress this up as godliness. We couch this as godliness. We give the kind of godly disclaimers. And there's a couple of them. The first it says, we could say to someone, I'm just worried about this person. So I want to let you know this. I'm just worried about this person. Other one is that the, uh, I thought it would be good for you to know. I thought it would be good for you to know. And sometimes there is information that needs to be passed on to people where it is good for them to know. I'm talking about hearts that come up with Christian disclaimers to justify passing on information that shouldn't be passed on from a judgmental heart. And the, and the thing about this one, when you're saying, I think it would be good to you know, for you to know, you're almost actually saying, I know that you and I are very important and actually you would be able to get on the high horse with me and judge this person too. That's basically what you're saying to the other person if they don't need to know. You including them in, in that. And the, la- and the last example that I was thinking about is the most classic. We need to pray for this person. We need to pray for this person. I just thought it would be good to, to pray for this person. And, and that's also another, another sort of disclaimer that we use. And you know why, and you know um, when we know that that's kind of happening, because we don't pray for the person. We don't. We just say, I really want to pray for this person, let me just tell you. And then you go on your way and you don't actually pray for the person because the intent was actually just getting the update in that way. But you see how subtle it is. You see how subtle it is. And what James is saying here, he's saying, it's it's not just a matter of the tongue, it's a matter of the heart. It's worse than you think. He's having that half-time chat with us. And here's the bottom line. How you speak about someone matters. How you speak about someone matters, whether you directly to them or about them to others. And I'd go as far as to say how you think about people matters. How you speak to yourself about people matter. It's no wonder James spends two out of five chapters talking about the tongue and the effects of the tongue. He uses descriptions like a small fire turning into a forest fire to explain the devastation of this. He spends two chapters talking about the effect the devastation of the tongue. I would even go as far as to say, and I've noticed that even with Sam, um, the way that I speak to other people with Sam, other people would say, oh no, well, you know, she's the closest person to you, she should be able to share everything. Yes, we should be able to share everything, but I'm not worried about the words that I'm speaking, I'm worried about the condition of my heart when I'm speaking about other people to her. 
And I would say that even in that moment, I can catch myself going, what is coming out of me? What is coming out of me in that moment? And it's maybe the truest moment where the condition of my heart is actually getting exposed. It's actually getting exposed. And it causes devastation. It causes devastation. It brings wedge between relationships. It tears down reputations. It breaks trust. I think of how many friendships and marriages have suffered because there's no, they're not longer spaces of love and appreciation and grace and joy. They're tainted with bitterness and criticism and judgment. And the record of wrongs is more regular than the initiatives of grace. It's what happens. That's what happens. And um, there are a few disclaimers where we are talking about judgmental and critical attitudes. I feel like the phrase being judgmental kind of gets thrown around sometimes in the wrong place. It kind of becomes a, uh, an empty defense or it gets misdiagnosed at times. And so we do need to realize that there are moments in scripture where we call to make judgment calls on people's character and, and their sinfulness, but in a holy way. I mean, James has been doing it to us the whole year. He's been doing it to these Jewish Christians. I feel like I've had a rinse this year going through this book. And just two examples I wanna mention of what James not calling us, uh, not saying about speaking evil and being judgmental is when we call each other to more in godly accountability. That's not what he's speaking about. In scripture says iron sharpens iron, and so we sharpen one another and there's this lovely way in which we mirror God's way um, to our character, to our action, and it helps, shapes us, it helps us grow in, in holiness. And this is great. And this is not what James is talking about when he's saying that we're being judgmental, speaking evil. Another thing that James is not talking about, he's not talking about speaking God's truth in love, speaking God's truth in love. And he gets to the heart of the issue, I think, here, because when we speak God's truth in love, we're not relying on our own truth or our own standards, but we're relying on His. We're relying on His. It's the recognition of Him being the highest authority and the rightful judge. And there's times where we call to honor God above people. And we do so lovingly. We speak God's truth, not our own, but we also do it how God has called us to do that, lovingly. And so these times where sober holy judgment is good, but it usually comes from a heart that ultimately wants to honor God. It's seeing him as the highest authority and it's seeking God's best for a situation, for a people, for a person. And as we look into the text or we go on, we see James makes it clear also that we're not above the law. He gives us another reason. He says, you're not above the law. Have you ever heard uh, the phrase, the rule of law? The, the rule of law. Some of us might have, some of us might not have. But basically, the rule of law implies that every person is subject to the law. Every person is subject to the law. No one is higher than the law, including uh, lawmakers, law officials, judges, presidents, rulers. Anyone is not higher than the law. They're all subject to the whole law. And the whole point of imposing the rule of law is to, to stop tyranny and dictatorships and the abuse of, of power, and especially in countries where, where historically rulers have done so. And, um, and this 
philosophy or constitutional philosophy and protective mechanism has been around for ages, for ages. They see Aristotle quoting it. They see it in writings from the Greeks from like 5,000 BC. It's been around for ages. And um, why I bring this up is because this principle, this protective mechanism makes it so evident that through the ages, there is something in the hearts of humans that are prone to want to sit on the judgment seat and be above the law and not under the law. It's so evident. When it comes to following rules, being under authority, there is like a default resistance in our operating system. And we enjoy the power of being our own lawmakers, setting our own standards or being our own judge. And whether that's a king or a queen or a president on the throne, or whether it's with our words and our actions in our own life. It comes from the same place. It comes from that prideful, prideful heart. And so we see James go on to say in the text, says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And um, what law are we speaking about here? Well, I'd make a case that he's speaking about the royal law that James references in chapter two, verse eight, where it reads this. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you're doing well, you're doing well. And the royal law is basically how Jesus sums up the whole Mosaic law into his kingdom of love. And, and he does this in Matthew 22, he sums it up. There's a lawmaker comes to speak to him and he kind of says to him, we're trying to understand the Mosaic law. You here is the Messiah, help me understand this. What is the most important of the laws then? And he says this, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The law summarized and simplified into love God and love people. It's no wonder that James would take this as the litmus test to how we are doing in our relationship with God and how we would view God. And judging, what James is saying is, judging another person is the clearest evidence that you're not abiding in God's law, but also more that you think that you're above it, that you think that you're above it, and he says, this is sinful. It's not only does it break the royal law of having to love one another, but it takes, um, it takes the right of judgment that only God has. It takes the right of judgment that only God has. And you not only have you broken the law, but the arrogance of your judgmental attitude comes from thinking that you're above the law. It's not just a violation against people. It's the violation against God. It's a violation against God. And that's the problem, we want to be on the judgment seat. And we're not only disobeying God's law, we're trying to replace him as the ultimate judge. And our, our arrogance, our pride, leads us into the spiritual blindness that elevates us above God and his ways. That's what that pride does in our hearts. James is saying this, this critical judgmental attitude, it's evidence of that. Back to the beginning, he says, it's not just the tongue, it's the heart condition, there's a bigger problem. And that's why James calls us to say, let the judge be the judge. He says, let the judge be the judge. James goes on further 
He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. And then he puts us in, his, in our place with that rhetorical question. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbour? And like we said, it doesn't, um, this, this pride in our hearts doesn't just affect the way that we speak about others. It also just affects the way that we view God. It affects the way that we view God. Isaiah 33 verse 22 says this, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, the Lord will save us. And this is the truth of it, that Jesus is the perfect sovereign judge. He decides who he saves or who he doesn't save. His judgment is the highest discretion. It is the most fair and perfect and it's not subject to appeal because it doesn't need to be subject to appeal. He is trustworthy. He's not like other sinful rulers. He doesn't have imperfection. He doesn't make those mistakes. We can trust him. He doesn't need the rule of law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fair judge. And he judges according to all his wisdom and all his righteousness and all his knowledge. That's the judge that you want. You wanna let the judge be the judge. John 5, 30 says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the reality is, before a perfect and just God, we all fall short of the requirements, not just of the law, of the righteousness that we need to be with a holy God, to have relationship with him. And actually, the truth of it is, is that the judgment over our lives is condemnation. The judgment over our lives should be condemnation. We are guilty as charged. We fall short. Jesus has every right to condemn, uh, condemn us. But what does he do? What does a loving God do? He offers mercy by dying for every one of us. He goes to the cross for us. He pays the price so he can extend grace. Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead of condemnation, we get grace. We get mercy. We get Him covering our shame. And God knows every sinful act, every sinful thought. He knows everything about us. And yet He still gives us mercy instead of condemnation. And that's what James can rhetorically with confidence say, who are we to judge? Who are you to judge? And when we realize that we have a perfect judge who's merciful to us, whose law is perfect, instead of condemnation, we get mercy and we realize that we don't have what it takes when we compare ourselves to him. We're not perfect, we're imperfect. We don't know everything. We're not all wise, we're not all knowing. We make bad lawmakers. We don't even know all the facts half the time. Jesus knows everything. We're just as sinful and imperfect as everyone around us. And our only hope is the merciful, perfect judge. Before I was a pastor, I was in law. One of the things that um, you learn in criminal law is, is that when there is an accused in uh, the dark and um, they've been accused of a crime, but they're unrepresented. They don't have an attorney, a defense attorney or an advocate representing them. The prosecution will come out and they will make their case. And the, the job of the prosecution is to make sure that that person in the dock goes to jail no matter what. 
But judges know that an accused needs to have a fair trial. And so what the judges will do is, is that they will in some ways make sure that they test all the evidence, that they know, um, that they're able to teach that person about what uh, the law is that they, they're facing, or sorry, the charges there are that they're facing. And they know everything about the law. And in a way, they will kind of step into this kind of defense mode because they want this person to have a fair trial. And what happens often more than what you think is that this person comes and uh, they think they've committed a crime and actually by the end of it, once you've looked at the evidence and once you've actually applied the law, they haven't. And so this has happened with um, uh, murder cases where someone has come and said, actually, um, I, I'll plead guilty. I'll plead guilty to murder. The judge just said, just hold on. I'm looking at the prosecution's case. Let's just look through this evidence because it looks like your life was under threat. It looks like there was abuse there. It looks like you acted in self-defense. I don't think you are guilty of murder. And at that moment, that person goes, oh, wow. And that person walks away. But at the time, they thought, well, this person died at my hand, so it must be murder. And this is my point. This is my point. You want to let the judge be the judge, the one who is all-knowing, all-wise, righteous, and merciful. That's who you want to let the judge, because we don't even trust judging ourselves. We shouldn't even trust judging ourselves. I don't want to judge myself. I want the judge to judge me, the merciful judge to judge me. And the point of this text is that it's not just about we need to just watch our tongues a little bit more in the future when we're speaking about others, although we should. But that's not the point. The point of the sermon and the point of the text is that we need to recognize the sinful pride in our hearts. We need to, we need to repent before a merciful judge. We need to ask him, as we heard earlier, to give us deeper revelation of his lordship, of his mercy and his grace and his love. Give us deeper revelation of that. And in turn, we need to humbly submit our ways and our words to him because we are just so undeserving. I mean, we've got a royal king who's given us a royal law and he's lived it out, this royal law of mercy and love and grace that our hearts should change in a way but it changes the way that we speak about others, that we deal with others. And this isn't just a, well, once this happens in my heart, what happens is I kind of stop speaking about other people. Sure, that's part of the transformation. But actually what's happening here is that when you have that deep revelation of that mercy and grace, it's not that you just stop talking about other people, speaking evil, being judgmental in your heart. You actually go on the offense you actually start encouraging people. And we've spoken about this before, but the encouragement is not flattery. The encouragement is the recognition of that mercy and that grace in other people's lives or into situations, and you're calling out the truth of God into situations. There's a courage that is drawn out of people when you speak the truth of God and grace in their lives, and you, there's a recognition of this. And you speak truth into moments. Psalm 133 that talks about unity being like oil down Aaron's beard. Pretty weird, I know. But basically what it's saying is this, is that unity, unity amongst people is the fragrance of the royal law. You will know that they're my disciples by the way that they love one another. Unity is the fragrance that we have from this royal law. 
And so it's not just about being on the defence on this. No, Jesus changes our hearts in the way when we understand His mercy and grace, we go on the offence. And actually, we want to speak truth into situations and encourage. We want to go and step out and try and honour people, commend people. And like I say, it's not a sense of positivity or trying to just speak well for the sake of making people feel better. That's not what it is. It's about calling out. There is so much truth and grace and mercy and gifting in people's lives, and yet it's still so hard for us to be encouraging in this day and age. It just is. It feels like such hard work. It's like, I don't know, people get weird. I get up to people and be like, oh man, you did that so well. And it's like, oh, it's awkward now. <laughs> Encouragement. Ah. That's what happens. That's what happens because we're not used to it. We're not used to it. And we sometimes, to be honest, we don't trust it. We don't trust it. And there's probably a couple of evidences that we see in our lives. If we do humble ourselves, if we truly do trust the Lord, there'll be some evidences that we start to see. I wanna mention some. We see a judgmental and a condemning spirit be replaced with mercy and grace and trust. A humble heart keeps giving undeserved grace because we know what we have received. We are still overwhelmed by what we have received. We tend to point others to his law, his ways, and not create our own. We don't trust our own. We don't trust our own. We don't see ourselves as the highest authority. A humble heart says, I don't know the full story, but I trust the one that does. I don't need to be part of that conversation. I don't need to know all the facts. There is one who is all-knowing, and he is a perfect judge, and I can trust him. A humble heart leaves any injustice that they might face at the hand of the judge, which means we get, to, we get to love and support his justice. We don't need to create our own. We don't need to try and um, get revenge. We don't need vendettas in our hearts. We can leave it to the judge. We trust that he is judge, uh, just. And lastly, and it's a, a verse that we hear, heard a few um, uh, weeks back, but a humble heart does not need to exalt oneself because it has a deep trust in knowing that if we submit to his lordship, that he will exalt us in his own timing if he wishes to do so. We can trust him. I don't need to lift myself up. I just get to lift his name up higher and he will, he will lift me up if he wishes to. He'll exalt me in his time. I don't, need to, I don't need to try and manufacture this. I don't need to lift my name up or drag other people's names down to find my coordinates. No, I humbly submit to the judge who knows my coordinates and in his timing, he can exalt me in his way. But may my heart still remain humble. We are inadequate judges. We need to let the judge be the judge. And we're gonna come to the communion tables now, but I wanna finish with this, this last point just before we do. When it comes to humility and trust and mercy, um, we, can, we can look to Christ's example as he walked on this earth and as he would endure the Christ. We don't need to go further than that. We can look to him. And um, have you ever thought about the fact 
that it was gossip and slander that would be the starting point of sending Jesus to his death on the cross. That it would be gossip and slander that would be the starting point of sending Jesus to the cross. Um, the band can come up if they are here. And we see in the Gospels, uh, we see this, um, particularly with the, 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 um, uh, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were people there was, there was this kind of moral high ground that they had, they had their own standards. And when Jesus, um, when Jesus was uh, doing his ministry with his disciples, he was eating grain out in the field on the Sabbath. And man, the Pharisees had such a problem with this, it infuriated them. And then after that, he would go and he would heal a man with a withered hand. And man, that just sent them over the edge. And they were so, so cross with him. And they were questioning him. And you see, because they worked so hard to keep up this, this moral high ground of the law, and they were puffed up on self-righteousness and pride, and they could see the Messiah had come and they had such a problem with him but their standards, this righteousness, this pride was so built up that they didn't see the mercy of love, that the kingdom of love had come and they didn't notice that a hand had just been healed. They missed it. And there was a spiritual blindness in their hearts that couldn't see it. And they judged him on, on their man-made standards. They made themselves the hero of their own story they saw him as a threat because the kingdom of love and mercy comes to break down religious ladders. And if you take down the religious ladders, you take down everything, you take down their whole world, it starts to crumble. And all throughout his ministry, they would question him and they weren't inquisitive. They would question him because they thought better. So they were provoking and questioning him all the time, grumbling in little groups about him. And when he, when he heals the man with the withered hand, Matthew 22, this is what it says. It says, but the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. They plotted how they might kill Jesus. Other translations say, they went out, they conspired how they might destroy him. They conspired how they might destroy him. If you ever doubted whether gossip and slander or speaking evil against someone causes devastation, let's not forget the part it played in sending Jesus to the cross. And eventually their plan would work. Even one of, the, one of his disciples would conspire against him and they would hold this counsel and they would charge him with blasphemy, which is ironic because it's the very thing that they were doing in that moment. And then they would hand him over to the Romans to do the dirty work. And he would go before a crowd, a jury, in a way. And then he would be incorrectly judged again. He'd get incorrectly judged again. And he would be reviled, he'd be slandered, he'd be tortured, and he'd be marched up the hill of Calvary to, the, to his death on the cross. All the while, not being defensive, not acting out in sin, most of the time not saying anything at all, but being obedient and trusting in the one true judge. And there's a verse in 1 Peter 2 that's gonna come up on the screen. You don't have to read it out loud, but I'm gonna read it. I really would appreciate it if you read it with me and what it says. It says, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And we've got to know the same sinful heart that was in those Pharisees, the Sadducees, the council, the jury, and every person who was pointing their finger at Him up the hill of Calvary is in us, is in us. And that's what James is getting to. It's deeper than you think. And in Christ's humble submission, He would trust the one true judge and in His obedience, He would give us this, the penultimate display of the fulfillment of the law. He'd put His royal law on display, His kingdom of love and mercy and grace on display. And He would lay down His life for us. And as we've heard earlier, Nick was sharing, that it's not just about the knowledge of His love, but it's actually experience His love. It's believing that we are loved. It's accepting that love. And because of this, because of His mercy, because of His grace, as we heard from that prophetic word from Anger, we're able to change. We don't need to stay the same. We can bring our hearts before Him tonight. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who are we? to judge. Who are we to judge? And we're gonna come to the communion table. If you're here for the, for the first time, maybe just visiting, you can feel free to let this moment pass you by. Maybe you wanna think about the words that I've spoken this evening or that we've heard this evening. But for the rest of us, as Christ follows, as we come take the elements, maybe there's something of us repenting where we've placed ourselves above God and His royal law. Maybe we've held people to our own insufficient standards. Maybe we've just cheapened the grace of God. We haven't received it. That's been knowledge to us. And Christ says, we take the, the wafer and the juice, it's His body broken for us, His blood that's shed for us, that we would remember this we would remember what He has done for us, that He has made a way. And as we take this, let it be a fresh reminder of His mercy, His grace that we've received from God. Let's bring our hearts in humble submission to His Lordship once again. And let it instill a confidence in us that we're not the judge, but oh, thank the Lord, You are the judge. You are the judge. We're gonna come forward, we're gonna take the elements, we're gonna have a moment where we can do business with God. Then after that, we're gonna stand and we're gonna praise and we're gonna worship together. Let's do that.